Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Thursday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. I had to let a day breathe between myself and the latest drop of Twitter files because I'm angry, furious even. Not so much that we know what was happening because we've been knowing what was happening. I'm enraged because even with the power of knowing and having the proof right here in the palm of our hands, I fear that absolutely nothing of consequence will happen if people do not start making a lot of noise. And according to the same government that has been conducting itself in such a manner, making noise is now the equivalent of domestic violent extremism. Let's rewind. For those of you who may not be rapidly checking notifications for the latest Twitter files drop, in the first week of May of 2020, at the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, Twitter senior legal executive Stacia Cardill received a communication from the Global Engagement Center, or the GEC. This entity was established in the Obama years under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. The GEC was like the State Department's wannabe version of the NSA or the DIA, which is the Defense Intelligence Agency. The communication included an attachment with a long list of names and a note that said, we are providing these 5,500 accounts that display inorganic behavior and follow two or more of the 36 Chinese diplomatic Twitter accounts that we have identified in the report. Due to the fact that these accounts follow two or more of these diplomatic accounts, and a good portion of them are newly created, we believe they are suspicious. Within a day of receiving the GEC list, Twitter executives became quite nervous. After an examination of the accounts revealed what company executives euphemistically called concerns, Cardill, Yoel Roth, and others immediately drafted a response to the GEC. Thank you for sharing information. We've begun reviewing the list of 6,000 accounts that GEC provided this morning and have serious concerns. In our initial review, we've already identified numerous accounts belonging to government entities in the United States, in, well, it says the Americas, including Canada, NGO and human rights organizations, and journalists. Twitter executives seemed particularly frustrated by the idea that the GEC was taking someone else's intelligence, then using the press to squeeze its way into an exclusive, exclusive moderation club. The DHS circulated a report on Chinese disinformation just a few days before the GEC reached out to Twitter. By then, the company was no longer shy about working with Congress, the FBI, DHS, the ODNI. However, they were not anxious to work with the GEC, which they seemed to perceive as a uh, weak sister of the intelligence community and also too political, as Roth put it. Uh, in other words, too pro Trump. 
The company reportedly had similar issues with some Pentagon agencies beginning in 2017. One former defense intelligence source suggested that Twitter preferred the FBI because it was, quote, less Trumpy. It was clear Twitter executives were opposed to letting the state agency lay hands on its magic moderation machine, preferring to, quote, keep the circle of trust quite small, as Roth put it. Feels like fucking Jack Burns from Meet the Fockers. Got my eyes on you. Obviously, (laughs) the State Department's a significant voice and one we don't want to neglect, wrote Roth on May 6th of 2020. But I do want us to continue to maintain a distinction between the highly trusted and valued relationships we've built over the years with entities with considerable expertise and authority and other parts of the U.S. government that may engage on these questions from time to time, sometimes in more political ways than others. Cardell argued shutting the agency out entirely was a bad idea, preferring to build goodwill, but agreed that the GEC was amateurish and bad news. They cannot be trusted, particularly if they see that they can score political points, she said. Well, hello, pot calling the kettle black, right? Not wanting the other side to get political points, all the while participating in and collaborating on creating an online echo chamber, the likes of which the world has never seen. Find this woman a mirror, please. A cursory internal review at the company revealed that the State Department list included accounts belonging to the Canadian military, Western NGOs, and journalists, including a CNN account. State's mythology, the State Department's mythology, methodology was incredibly broad, including accounts that followed two or more Chinese diplomats. We're all on that list, joked one Twitter staffer. No one is surprised by that. When GEC sent its list of 5,000 plus accounts in May, they, the move was seen as amplifying messaging from Trump's Secretary of State at the time, Mike Pompeo, who accused China of withholding information. Twitter executives agreed with a vote that they would not participate in that. Especially as the election heats up in the coming months, introducing an actor like the GEC into what has to date been a stable and relatively trusted group of practitioners and experts poses major risks, is how Roth put it. Holy bananas, man. That state boot leather must taste so good on his tongue. Roth eventually got word from his counterpart at Facebook, Nathaniel Gleicher, that GEC wanted a seat at the regular industry meeting that included the FBI, DHS, and ODNI. It was the opinion of Roth, Gleicher, and Google's Rick Salgado, however, that GEC's participation should be opposed. Notable that, to my knowledge, this is the first time Google the company and Rick Salgado have been formally named in the Twitter files as participants in the industry meeting. One of the reasons their participation was opposed, GEC's uh, participation, was their mandate for offensive information operations to promote American interests. Cardell then chimes in, that she's discussed the GEC problem with the FBI, 
political lackey Elvis Chan was on the same page with her. Laura Demlo, who was the Foreign Influence Task Force chief, was not on board. As the 2020 election approached, the FBI, via Elvis Chan, negotiated with Roth and others to make sure every interested government agency had a seat at the table. A concerned Roth asked what USG agencies will be allowed on a new signal channel for centralizing industry briefings. Um, I think the easy ones will be FBI, DHS, CISA, and ODNI, Chan replied. For your awareness, state slash GEC, NSA, and CIA have expressed interest in being allowed to be on listen-only mode. Welcome your thoughts on this. I have thoughts on this. I have a lot of thoughts on the alphabet soup shit show that participated in all of this, but he was asking Elvis Chan, not me. (laughs) Uh, Chan replied that the signal group would be a one-way communication from USG to industry. If industry could rely on the FBI to be the belly button for the USG, then we can do that as well. Chan further elaborated, explaining that the FBI would essentially coordinate federal-level reports while the DHS's CISA would handle domestic traffic. Roth finally caved and became readily available like an escort on speed dial. Literally, they were paid $3.41 million for operating as a subcontractor for the United States government. Twitter took requests from every government agency, including state officials in Wyoming, Georgia, Minnesota, Connecticut, California, and others, as well as the NSA, the FBI, DHS, DOD, DOJ, and others. Twitter ended up receiving so many requests from so many different avenues that their executives ended up getting confused. Hey, Elvis, wrote one receiving a notice about something called the Northern California Regional Intelligence Center. Is this something different than what we'll already be receiving through the Signal Channel? Chan explained. We'll be sharing the typical threat indicators through Signal, he said, while the NCRIC was part of a Homeland Security-based network called HISN, which would be focused on local public safety matters, riots, shootings, bombings, etc. Cardill said, my inbox is really fucked up at this point, referencing the swarm of FBI requests. Not every request was honored. Um, In one case, Twitter's government liaison passed word from the Office of Democratic Congressman and Intelligence Committee then-chair, Adam Schiff, asking to suspend many accounts, including Paul Sperry which have reportedly spread false QAnon conspiracies. Journalist Paul Sperry of Real Clear Investigations, by an extraordinary coincidence, was the reporter who revealed the name of Adam Schiff's whistleblower in the Ukraine Gate affair. The coincidence was so extraordinary that even Twitter cringed at first. Uh, we don't do this. No, we don't do this. Came an immediate response. 
The Twitter files show how the digital censorship system evolved from 2017. Early on, company emails were entirely internal and requests about, say, Russia-linked accounts came on a case-by-case basis. In some cases, through physical meetings with officials at places like the Senate Intelligence Committee. By 2020, the moderation machine was a high-speed, formalized information highway with federal and international requests passed through the FBI via signal and teleporter, and domestic asks funneled upward through the homeland security mechanisms like HISN. The FBI and DHS stopped asking Twitter and soon simply just sent long lists with the expectation of fulfillment. If Twitter didn't act fast enough, they got quick follow-up emails from the Bureau. Was action taken? We wanted to get process served. Or any movement? Not that I ever had any high expectations for our government or actors on the stage that is Congress, but seeing it all laid out here, you have to wonder... When will more people wake up that this government cares nothing about them and only about seeking, seizing, and maintaining power and control over the populace? It is now Thursday, and the House of Representatives has still failed to nominate a speaker with the required minimum of votes. The self-inflicted task of observing and discussing the chamber goings-on of the last few days has been somewhat maddening. It doesn't take long into the vote for McCarthy to fail to secure the votes necessary. After breaking earlier in the day for conference and reconvening at 8 p.m., I actually believe they may reach a consensus and have the final vote, but just kidding. They decided to vote to adjourn for the evening, which, when you work for America, you quit when the going gets tough, don't you know? I watched this vote live as well. And they had quite the ruckus even getting the session adjourned. So I see this from two different perspectives. The Republican Party of my father's prime is no more. They just don't know it yet or don't want to admit it. The Freedom Caucus has moved in and it does not appear that they're going anywhere. Least of all, along with them, if they don't have their demands met for the governing rules of the House. It seems one of the biggest contentions thus far is this group is still pushing to give a single lawmaker the power to call for a vote toppling the speaker, which technically is how it was set up before Nancy Pelosi took over. So I don't think it's completely over the top expectation. I know that for Republicans, this is being called frustrating, embarrassing, unproductive. However, in my humble opinion, This is what government should look like. It shouldn't be one big uniparty. It shouldn't be go along to get along. We've been doing that. And it got us a three-year lockdown, a tyrannical bureaucracy, a wide open border, and a few trillion dollars of debt with the worst inflation and highest gas prices I've seen in my lifetime. If it takes 20 people to stand up and say a giant screw you, as many times as it takes, For those who have been, quote, conserving nothing, to hear that the American people have had enough, then I hope they continue to push back until those demands have been met. Now, as I mentioned to you guys on Monday, the House of Representatives has not failed to elect a speaker on the first ballot in 100 years. For generations, it was the definition of party loyalty for every member of each party 
to vote for its nominee for speaker. In fact, for 50 years after World War II, not a single stray vote was cast for anyone other than the two major party nominees. Again, go along, get along. On several occasions since 1997, we have seen a few members of the majority party voting present or voting for someone other than their party nominee. But it has not prevented that nominee's election as speaker. For Congress watchers, this telegraphs something that's historically amiss on Capitol Hill, or at least within the party running one of its chambers. And that was certainly the message from the House the last time it had this much trouble electing a speaker. A long and eventful century ago, still a distant mirror can show us things, and even across 10 decades of profound change, There are parallels between this week's meltdown, quote-unquote, at the outset of the 118th Congress and the fiasco that occurred in the 68th. Then, as now, the party with the House majority was the Republican Party. Both times, the party's nominee for speaker was someone who had been in the job before or in line for the job for several years. Don't get me started on that line in line for the job for several years because we'll be here all day. In 1923, it was Frederick H. Gillett. I think that's how you say his name. Maybe Gillette, Gillette, I don't know. G-I-L-L-E-T-T, if you want to look it up, of Massachusetts. In neither case had the nominee himself been especially controversial, although I think arguments could be made for McCarthy's controversies, but I won't be doing that right now. Each had risen through the ranks, a survivor of earlier leadership, upheavals, generally compatible with the party's broad rank and file. But having reached the top of the leadership ladder, these men represented a party establishment regarded with hostility by a potent faction of the party. They became the embodiment of that faction's grievances. The 68th Congress was officially in office as of March of 1923, but Gillett, Gillette, I'm just going to say Gillett, and his House leadership team did not convene its first session until late that fall. Harding had died suddenly in August of that year and was succeeded by his vice president, Calvin Coolidge. By the time the vote for the speaker actually commenced, it was December. With a majority barely larger than Republicans have now, Gillett found it more difficult to corral the factions within his party. He just got 197 votes on the first ballot, which is fewer than McCarthy got on his first test this week. On that first ballot, the Democratic nominee, Finnis Garrett of Tennessee, got 195 votes, and two other Republicans got a total of 23. The key obstacle for Gillett was a block party of block of his party members who called themselves progressives. The term used by Theodore Roosevelt in his third party, Bull Moose, for a bid for president in 1912. 17 House members who identified as progressives would cast their first round speaker votes for Henry Cooper of Wisconsin. Cooper was a former prosecuting attorney from Racine who represented southeastern Wisconsin from 1893 to 1919, and again from 21 until his death in 1931. Over his long career, Cooper only lost once, paying a price in 1918 for having opposed U.S. entry into World War I. 
Cooper, whose parents had operated a station on the Underground Railroad, was a longtime ally of Wisconsin's legendary progressive governor and Senator Robert Fighting Bob LaFollette. When Cooper was opposing Glitt, LaFollette was conducting a smaller-scale revolt against the GOP leaders in the Senate. Ultimately, however, Gillette survived. Although the voting continued for days, no clear alternative emerged with any chance of getting a majority. In the end, he was able to win over the Cooper voters with the help of his number two leader, Nicholas Longworth of Ohio. Widely viewed as Gillette's heir apparent, Longworth was able to convince enough of the progressives that there would in fact be procedural reforms. Getting Gillette over the finish line took a total of nine ballots, and in the end, some of Cooper's backers simply voted present. The Speaker was re-elected with just 215 votes, which at that time was the majority, because only 414 members were present and voting for a name. There were those this week who suggested this might be a model for McCarthy's strategy as well. Vote, wait, vote again, repeat. Over many votes and ballots, some of the less zealous members might drift away as the hour grew late or the weekend grew near. I don't know what's going to happen over the next couple days with this vote, but I do know that every minute that we do not have a sitting Congress, there is no work being done for the American people, and there are no massive spending bills being passed. Pick your poison. That is your Thursday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am so glad you guys hung with me today. Sorry it was only two topics, but they are both, I think, important and needed to be discussed. So um, you guys take care and I will see you tomorrow. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.